Thank you for tuning in to Kingdom Encounters, and this week we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 35. And as you're turning there, I have a question. Who likes difficult conversations? We've all had them. They're no fun. And try as we may, try as we might, we try to avoid them. We wish they weren't part of life, but the reality is... When sin entered the world, sin entered relationship. And we've been dealing with those consequences ever since. But good news, friends, good news, we have hope. Please turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. Here's the picture. Jesus tells a story about a shepherd with a hundred sheep. They all go out to graze on the mountain. And Jesus says there in verse 12, what do you think, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one who is straying? At some point, one of the sheep is separated from the rest. Maybe something has caught his eye. Maybe he wants to frolic and play. We don't know the situation. All we know is, is that the sheep is straying. He's, he's gone astray. He's wandered off the path, misled, deceived. Reality is, going astray is a constant possibility in the life of one who follows the Lord. No one is above it. No one is beyond it. And on this side of life, we will always be faced with the temptation to sin and the, and the temptation to stray. But fortunately, we have the Good Shepherd, Jesus, who goes after his sheep. And this image sets up what is to follow. Jesus says in verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Why does Jesus go here? Why does Jesus go here right after the story of the 99? Your brother, your brother, a member of the same religious community, a, a fellow Christ follower. The brother sins, the brother goes astray, and we don't know the nature of, of what the sin is specifically. And that's intentional. Jesus says that if a brother in the faith sins, to go and show him his fault in private. Yeah, no one really digs doing that, do they? Why are we called to this awkward, uncomfortable scenario? <sighs> yes, awkward and uncomfortable and no fun. We are the body of Christ. We belong to each other. And one of the great things about church membership is that we are family. If we're part of the body of Christ, we each have a personal affinity with Jesus. And how we conduct ourselves and our business reflects on Him. If there is an issue, we are told to address it in a discreet manner. If our brother listens, it's a win. It's a win. And if the brother says, Oh my, I'm so sorry. Thank you for confronting me. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. 
This has been a struggle for me. Thank you for calling me out. It's a win for all. Case closed. We we move on. We, there's no more need to comment. We move forward. But if this brother does not listen, Jesus says to take two or more as a group to, again, discreetly address the individual about the issue. The hope and the prayer is that the brother changes direction, repents, turns from the sin, and everyone moves forward. Goodness, this this is where the this is where the preacher hopes it would cease. I I'm personally a fan of 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 the first option, door number one. It's just better for everybody involved. But we don't always get our wish, do we? So often it can be a situation where the brother in Christ says, "You know, it's my business. It's not yours." Well, is it hurting the body of Christ? Is it hurting the ministry of the body? Uh, we all sin. And no one is above sin. We are told very clearly that, that we all miss the mark. But the, does the particular sin in question bring shame on Christ and His church? Does this sin cause the witness of the church to be a stumbling block to an unsaved community? Verse 17, Jesus says, If the man refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If the brother refuses, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At this point, really nobody wins. The reality is, at this point, it's everyone's business. If the brother is unwilling to change behavior, Jesus says, let him be to you, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, as you may remember, to these Jews, this first century audience, Gentiles were considered unclean. Jews did not want to associate with Gentiles, and they sure didn't have any respect for tax collectors. They they felt that these tax collectors, because they were Jews, they were traitors, they were traitors to Rome. Jesus says, let the brother be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But what about to Jesus? Jesus is a shepherd, and Jesus is that one who goes after the one who has gone astray. The shepherd goes after the sheep, which has gone astray, and now we're given words of hope. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. The Holy Spirit is in the midst of God's people. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, is the helper. Yes, but the Holy Spirit is in the business of the conviction of sin. Once you and I have been convicted of our sin, how can we deal with sin? And by the way, to have a kingdom encounter, your first kingdom encounter is going to be when you are dealing with the conviction of your own sin. When you begin to feel the guilt about your own sin, that's the Holy Spirit bringing that to your attention. The Holy Spirit is always at work. And that, my friends, is when you have your first kingdom encounter. 
How do we deal with sin? Well, Jesus' death on the cross paid our sin debt. Jesus' death forgives our sin debt, and that's the good news. That's, that's the gospel. The gospel is how one deals with sin. Confronting sin, conviction of sin, confession of sin, forgiveness of sin. Dealing with sin is how one can become part of the kingdom of heaven. That's your kingdom encounter. The Holy Spirit and the gospel are both keys to dealing with sin and becoming part of the kingdom of heaven. And there's another helpful key in dealing with sin and learning how to become part of the kingdom of heaven. When you have a body of people, when you have a body of people, the church, called out from the world and called to God, and that is what the word church means, to be called out from the world. This body that's called out, called from the world and called to God, this body of people who have had personal sin confronted, convicted, confessed, and forgiven because they've heard the gospel, the only way to deal with sin, you have a body of people filled with the very life of God, the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, protected by the Holy Spirit, who are proclaiming the gospel which has saved them from sin and death and hell. And with the same power of God, Holy Spirit supplied, which exists to honor and give glory only to the Son of God, anything is possible. Anything is possible regardless of the size or expanse, as long as it brings honor to the Son, Jesus, who is the head of the church. As God's people, the church, as we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, God-sized things will begin to happen because Jesus is in the midst of his people. God-sized things will happen. The grace of the gospel is extended. Brothers in Christ will turn from their sin. There is repentance. The church and its witness is strengthened. This picture of God-sized things happening, Jesus addresses this using very descriptive language there in, in Matthew 18, verse 18, when he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. As God's people, the church, as we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, God-sized things will begin to happen. The beauty of the gospel is redemption. The beauty of the body of Christ is redemption. The beauty of uncomfortable conversations saturated with prayer, be it with one person or a group of two or more or a church body, is to see again the beauty of the gospel, Christ dealing with our sin. If you and I, if we are unwilling to share that grace with someone in the body who is tripped up in sin, we are not being the body. The body is about grace. We have to be willing to deliver that grace. We owe it to those and we owe it to ourselves. Christ died to deal with our sin and to bring us into fellowship with the Father. We have to allow the opportunity to see that happen within the body. When these unfortunate situations happen, yes, I said when, not if, but when. And, of course, when we read this account, certain types of sins immediately come to mind. There's another type of relational sin that I believe Jesus has in mind within this text. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus says to Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven.
For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents. Today's current talent market value, it's possible that one talent of gold is equal to $1.5 million. Wow. So 1.5 million times 10,000. <laughs> what would financial experts like Dave Ramsey say? How does this even happen? Well, you know, that's not really the point of the story. The how or the why. The point is the reality of this man's crushing debt. Jesus goes on there in verse 25, Since the man did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. It's time to pay the piper. The man, his wife, the children, the property are to be sold. The slave falls to the ground and prostrates himself before the Lord, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. There in verse 26, the man falls to the ground, prostrates himself before the king, begs for patience, begs for mercy, does not beg to be absolved of his debt, but he asks for patience and time. Verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The Lord of the slave feels compassion. The Lord of the slave releases the man. The Lord of the slave not only releases the man, but forgives the debt. What would that look like to you and me? Uh, those of us who are property owners, those of us who pay a mortgage, can you imagine to be set free? But then there's a turn in the script. There's a turn in the story. In verse 28, we read that the slave goes out and finds one of his fellow slaves who owes him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. There's a total lack of self-awareness on parade here. The slave, well, well, let's call him what he is, the forgiven man. The forgiven man goes out to one of his peers one just like him. The peer owes the forgiven man a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. Uh, what's today's current denarii market value? Well, it's possible that that one denarius, that's in denarii's plural, one denarii is equal to around 43 cents. So we're talking, we're talking a total of 43 dollars. There in verse 29, we read that the fellow slave falls to the ground and begins to plead with the forgiven man, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. It's the same scene as before. The peer falls to the ground, prostrates himself before the forgiven man to whom the peer owes the money. The peer begs for patience. The peer begs for mercy. He does not beg to be absolved of his debt, but he asks for patience and time. In verse 30, we read... The forgiven man is unwilling and goes and throws him in prison until the peer should pay back what was owed. The forgiven man is unwilling. Unwilling. That's a powerful word. Unwilling 
implies options. Well, I could have gone with option A, but I was unwilling, so I went with option B. The forgiven man throws his peer into prison until the peer should pay the debt. How does the man pay debt? How can the man work to pay debt when he's in jail? In verse 31, we read that the fellow slaves, they see what's going on. They are deeply grieved, and they, and they come and they report to the Lord all that has happened, which is a reminder that, uh, you know, there's always someone watching. Companions, friends, brothers and sisters of both men are watching these proceedings, and they are grieved. They go and they tell the Lord, the king, who has been settling these accounts. And in 32, we read that the Lord, summoning the forgiven man, says to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. The forgiven man is summoned again before the Lord. The Lord gives a reminder to the forgiven man. Uh-oh. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And I can imagine silence falling. How does one respond to that? In verse 34, Jesus tells us that the Lord of the debt, the Lord who is settling the debts, is moved with anger, and he hands the forgiven man over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. The Lord, who was once moved with compassion for the forgiven man, is now moved with anger. Forgiveness of the debt is removed. Forgiveness is removed. And an awful scene is on display. Is, is the family sold? We, we don't know. In verse 35, Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Unwilling to forgive. Have you ever been there? I have. Seventy times seven. Seventy times seven. That number seven. In Christian numerology, seven often represents God's perfection, wholeness, completeness, an ideal, beyond ideal. What, what does forgiveness look like? Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say to you to forgive up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Forgive your brother over and above. Forgive your brother above and beyond. I had a colleague. Well, he was really an acquaintance from back in my days when I was a worship pastor. This acquaintance, his name was Joe, and he was a fellow worship pastor, and he had extended the invitation for our worship ministry to come and lead a, a service. Joe and I had two conversations. We spoke on the phone. That's where he introduced himself. And then we met one time to have coffee prior to me bringing the worship ministry to his church. We, we talked twice. That's it. And... One afternoon, as we were sitting in the old Books a Million Cafe over on Hirschberger Road in Roanoke, Joe said something over coffee that I'll never forget. 
Since I like to receive grace, I try to find as many opportunities as I can to extend it. Let me say that one more time. Since I like to receive grace, I try to find as many opportunities as I can to extend it. A few years later, I had heard through the grapevine that Joe had succumbed to a heart attack. That saying to me became known as Joe's proverb, and I don't know how many times I've passed on what he shared with me. Since I like to receive grace, I try to find as many opportunities as I can to extend it. Do you remember the story of the ninety and the nine? One sheep has gone astray, and the shepherd leaves the ninety-nine on the mountains and goes and searches for the one that is straying. And if it turns out that the shepherd finds it, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. How happy is the shepherd who left all he had to go after the one who had gone astray? He rejoices. And in verse 14 of Matthew 18, we see these words of Jesus. It is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Aren't we glad to have a shepherd who comes after us when we go astray? You know, the story of the hundred sheep, this frames the straying of the brother who is in sin, as well as the brother who will not forgive. So a question, which man strayed the furthest away from the fold, from the heart of God, the brother caught in sin, or the forgiven man who was unwilling to forgive? Aren't we glad to have a shepherd who comes after us when we go astray? Jesus, the good shepherd, left the glory of heaven and came after us by going all the way to the cross. Jesus' death on the cross paid our crushing sin debt. Jesus' death forgives our sin debt. Friends, that's the good news. That's the gospel.